Hey guys, in this episode, we interview Andrew Pardue. Now, I met Andrew in the 2016 NSCA conference, and he presented to me uh, the findings from his research there, and it was really interesting. Um, there's only been, I would say, like four or five case studies on natural bodybuilders ever performed, and I believe I'm familiar with almost all the people who were in them. In fact, I coached most of the people that were in them. <laughs> Um, Andrew I did not coach however and but interestingly still had a connection to him because he actually used money um, that was granted to uh, the La Abby Smith Ryan's lab at UNC uh, to support his research so it was cool to see that um, the the BioLane Foundation grant was able to support some really cool research so he followed himself um, his own prep uh, for a natural show and looked at different markers of metabolism, metabolic rate, uh, hormones, and some other factors, and then followed these also throughout the course of his reverse diet. And Sohi and I really enjoyed this interview. Um, he's very passionate, very driven, and more than that, um, just had some really great insights to what are some of the best ways to get through a long diet or, or a reverse diet, and what are some things we need to think about uh, when we're addressing these topics. So I think you guys are really gonna enjoy this interview. Um, it's, it's pretty sciencey as usual, but there's a lot of practical stuff you're gonna be able to take away from it, and uh, I think you guys are really gonna enjoy it. So this is Physique Science Radio and our interview with Andrew Pardue. You're not currently in grad school, is that right? Uh, no, no. So, um, yeah, I, I started doing the, the case study really, to be, uh, to be honest, mostly in preparation for grad school. So at the time, uh, I kind of had a few ideas of how I wanted to uh, pursue my career after school. Um, at, at that point, I was considering grad school pretty strongly. I had went into undergrad um, with every intention of doing grad school. It was just kind of uh, especially growing up, it was kind of a given that I was going to at least get my master's. Um, so um, I, I got into undergrad and was trying to, to obviously maximize my time there as much as I could. And uh, with the idea that I was probably going to do grad school, um, that's really a, a big inspiration for why I did uh, the case study. So uh, for those of you that don't know, like a lot of undergrads will allow you to do basically an honors thesis. So it, it's oh. meant to, to replicate, uh, you know, like the thesis is you would do in, in, in your master's programs and whatnot. So basically to help you prepare for grad school, and, and it, of course, looks good on, on resumes and applications and thing, things like that. So um, I was in a class with, with Dr. Sprod, which is uh, the corresponding author in, in this study that, that we're talking about. And um, one thing led to another, and I found out that that was a possibility. So um, you know, I, I went into undergrad with the idea that I'm here, we're paying the money to, to go here, so I might as well do everything I possibly can to, to really squeeze <laughs> every last drop out of it. So um, it, it was kind of a, uh, a no-brainer. I started doing the started looking into developing the study and, and kind of just went from there. Uh, one thing led to another, and after my undergrad, I had some opportunities to uh, work in the supplement industry, which uh, at the time, that was one of the options that I was considering pursuing anyway. And uh, it just kind of turned out to be uh, one of those things where it, it was a really good time to just go ahead and start working rather than going to grad school. And um, <laughs> one thing led to another again. And, and now I am coaching uh, full time, which uh, I found out through some trial and error that that's really what I was passionate about and enjoyed. And, and I'm sure you guys can. Hi, Andrew. Can 
Uh, can you say it again? You do online coaching right now? Uh, yes, ma'am. So yeah, I, I'm converted to, to doing that full time now, which I, I absolutely love. And uh, it, it's one of those things where, <laughs> which not to digress too much, but it's one of those things where, and I'm sure you guys kind of felt the same way early on. It seems like such a an awesome thing to do, but at the same time, I was I had a really hard time believing that I could do it full time, if that makes sense. Uh, it just seemed like yeah. a. It's a newer. I want to say, like, I feel like in the past ten years, it's really taken off. Um, and and then and, and Lane, you were saying Dr. Joe was the first one to kind of pioneer the online coaching world, huh? And then you were also one of the first as well. Yeah, I would, you know, the, uh, you know, obviously, I don't. It's hard to say like who was the first online coach, you know, like. Uh, who sent the first email to a client? You know what I mean? Um, I guess like, I guess remote coach would be probably, you know, but yeah, Joe was doing it, you know, cause obviously like I was in Florida in undergrad school when, uh, when Joe was coaching people and, uh, he coached me from, from, from a distance. He was in my hometown of Evansville. And, um, yeah, I, I, I would say, I guess the, if I gave myself any credit, it would be that I popularized it <laughs> by talking about it so much. Yeah. And I think other people went and said, oh, I could do that, you know, and, and some people have, have really do, done it and done it really well, you know. Um, I would say we're kind of um, in the best and worst of the coaching era in that um, there's a lot of really bad coaches, but there's also a lot of really good coaches now. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, like you, if you, and I hate to, I hate to use this term, if you do your research, um, you know, you could, you could. For a, for a reasonable price, I mean, I and even like I've had to drop my prices over the years just because it's so competitive now. Um, mm -hmm. You know, back in 2013, um, I could kind of charge a king's ransom for, for coaching, <laughs> and uh, and you know, but like th that's the nature of markets, right? Because um, you know, when you're when you're um, you know, when a technology first comes out or anything new first comes out, you know, for example, like um, you know, like remember HD TVs? Like, so you will know this, like. I don't know how, how, how old are you, Andrew? So I just get an idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 23, I'll be 24 next month. Okay. So when you were like five or six, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but when HD TVs first came out, I mean, you, for like a 40 inch, you know, 1080p or 1080i, it was actually when it first came out, you know, you're going to pay thousands of dollars, you know, and, and now, um, you can go walk in, get a 40, 40 inch HD TV for like 200 bucks, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Like it's just, and the reason is, is that everybody makes them, right? Like everybody yeah. and their mom makes HDTVs. And so when you have that much competition, it drives down price and it drives up quality because mm. not only have they, have the margins gotten smaller, but they've got to, they've got to uh, be just as good quality in order to validate that sale. So I think in that way, coaching has really gotten a lot better. Now the, the downside is that, you know, for the most part, it's kind of gone like TV where, the the real stars of the industry are the social media stars are the mm -hmm. are the you know because we don't really have a TV media stuff for bodybuilding or fitness industry yeah. so yeah unless, it has a lot to do with how many followers you have online right and right that and, translates to how legible or credible you appear right people which is not always yeah so but if you're willing to, you know, do a little a modicum of research and kind of, you know, figure out, um, you know, who seems to to be reasonably intelligent and know what they're talking about, and um, you know, has a good track record with clients and good referrals. And I mean, for yeah. 
for, you know, I don't want to say you can get them for, a, for, for super cheap, but you can get a really, really good coach for, you know, a few hundred dollars a month, um, which compared to what it used to be is very, very reasonable. Right. Yeah, hey, it, Andrew, I know you work with a lot of competitors uh, as clients currently, right? I've seen pictures of you with at shows supporting your clients. Yeah, so I do. Uh, so it's mostly a, a contest prep and, and then off seasons for for like the competitive physique athletes. Um, I do some uh, general population and things like that. Um, a because like when I first started lifting and, and getting into the whole thing, it wasn't to compete; it was just to, to look and feel better. So I do some general population, um, sure. but I, I like to focus on on the competitive side of it. It's uh, the fact that you have to get as detailed as you do during that um, is really been the main interest of mine. So it, it's been a lot of fun and. Um, yeah, it, it, it was one of those things where I would have loved to have done that as soon as I got out of college, but, um, I kind of just didn't, didn't know whether or not I, I would actually be able to do it full time. And then, uh, like I said, uh, after a few different developments, it just kind of led that way. And, uh, now I, I'm fortunate enough to be able to do it full time and, and, uh, <laughs> doing this research that, that we're talking about, um, you know, like I said, it had nothing to do with like supporting my, my coaching passions or anything like that, because at the time, uh, you know, I coached a few people, uh, you know, I'll consider it like part time. You know, I helped some people while I was in college, but uh, at the time, I didn't expect that I would be doing it as my full time career. It's just um, I knew some case study researching was becoming more popular for the sport and loved natural bodybuilding. Yeah. So it, it was just kind of a natural fit. But uh, now that things have developed how they have, uh, yeah, I'm even more happy that I that I went through it all. For sure. That's cool. Yeah, Andrew, you know what I love about all of this with the, you know, the, the popularity and online coaches and whatnot? Yes, there's a very low, virtually no barrier of entry to become an online coach. You really have to do uh, what I see a lot happening lately is someone does one show and then all of a sudden they call themselves <laughs> an online coach. Or maybe they don't even do a yeah, show. Yeah. Decide that, you know, they, they're not qualified. They don't have certifications, but they just go for it. But at the same time, I'm also seeing, um, I would say, a slower rise, but still a, a rise nonetheless in online coaches who are also very much immersed or at least very interested in the scientific research side of, of bodybuilding and fitness and nutrition in general. And uh, so I was really impressed last night reading through your case study that you guys, that you emailed over. And from what I recall, you, you followed a uh, one bodybuilder, 21 year old male bodybuilder for 13 months, right? And you had, and you took measurements, physiological measurements at uh, three different time points. Is that right? Uh, so the, yeah, there's Andrew, a funny... Andrew uh, just who might be that 21 year old bodybuilder? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was gonna say. The funny part is, uh, I was I was the I designed the study, you know, obviously with help with with colleagues as well, but I uh, designed the study uh, and was also the the case study participant. So oh, I was. Uh... <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Plot twist: Which, He is the yeah. Matrix. <laughs> so I would say too before I forget. That's one thing that I think, honestly, I had people ask me early on, like, would that be considered a conflict of interest or anything like that? And, yeah, and I would always say, well, I would always say no, because I didn't really have anything to gain from the data that we collected. You know, whether my my hormones changed one way or another, you know, I had okay. nothing to gain from it. It was just it was just data that was helpful for other people. But then okay. also um, and really quick, I, um, yeah. for the purpose, sorry, of people, maybe who students who want to get involved in research later on. Um, is this something for a case study, if you are your own subject for your own paper, is this something you have to disclose to the IRB? Uh, yeah, so that's that's another thing that was uh, really interesting because obviously at this point I had done no research whatsoever other than just like, yeah. you know, looking up studies. So the whole thing is a, a super good learning progress or process. And I would say for anyone that's like 
looking to go to grad school, getting into some of this stuff during undergrad, you know, is definitely going to help shorten that learning curve. Um, so yeah, with the IRB, it was, it was, I had to, to disclose that I had to do uh, a written agreement, you know, basically accepting the, what was going to happen and, and acknowledging that. And then, uh, you know, also with the DEXA scans, um, I actually almost didn't even get the DEXA into the study because, um, for anybody that doesn't know, DEXA scans are, are a really accurate body composition, composition tool, but, uh, it emits like a very small amount of X-ray emissions. So, I had to go through a whole another special thing and get signed off through a doctor to get the DEXA scans um, wow. th- three times during the study. You so, had some hoops to jump through. Uh, can you say that again? I'm sorry. You had you had some ho- hoops to jump through to make this happen. <laughs> yeah. So and and then obviously like at that point I'm I mean I'm young now but I was even younger then so like I'm I'm wide eyed <laughs> and like super nervous about the whole thing and afraid sure. like something's not going to go through or, or whatever. So the whole thing, uh, you know, you have to go through an IRB committee meeting where they ask you questions and, um, you know, that basically determines if, if the study gets approved or not. So the entire time I feel like I was being interrogated by like the FBI or something because I was so nervous. So, um, so yeah, definitely some hoops to go through and, and acknowledging that, that I was kind of doing both roles, but I think that's one thing that really makes these case studies more accurate and like more reliable in the first place, because, when I first started, I had people ask me why I didn't get more people involved and, and either do uh, a study among different universities and get people prepping at the same time. That way I have more, uh, you know, a bigger population to go through. But, you know, people also didn't take into account how much you had to overlook in the study. You know, we had to, to make sure I was hitting the diet every day. Um, you know, the big part being the reverse diet. You know, most people blow their reverse diet or don't even do it in the first place. And, um, you know, for me, even myself in the reverse diet, like it was obviously the hardest part of the entire thing and and making sure that I stuck with that. That way we actually had reliable information. But for me being the playing both roles, it helped because I knew if, if I screwed up the reverse diet, it was going to screw up the study. So I had like the best accountability. Yeah. It was the best accountability anyone could ever have. Cause this at the time I thought this was going to be, you know, a big factor in grad school uh, acceptance or not. So in my head, like there's no, there's no going off the plan. So um, it, it definitely helped being on both sides, but uh, um, I don't know how I, I did it all because looking back, I'm like, wow, that was really stupid, but <laughs> I'm glad that. <laughs> That's all right, man. You're talking to the guy who started up a full-time business when he was doing his PhD. So <laughs> yeah, um, people, people do great, crazy things in college. Crazy for sure. things, man. Well, when you're passionate about something, that's, that's what you do. Yeah, um, for sure. So, so okay. So let's talk about the study. So, uh, what? How long was your prep? How long did you follow post diet? And what what measurements did you assess? Yeah. So um, the the prep started in in November, and this was like 2014. So that shows people just how long it takes to to really do a study and then actually get it published. So um, November 2014, and then I ended up competing in two shows, June of 2015. And then had like a five-month reverse dieting period. So the the total from start to finish was 13 months. Uh, during that time, I did uh, blood work every every three months, basically in November, February, June, and then two times during the reverse diet. And then uh, it it was like I said, it, it was really interesting being the participant too because I, I was able to see exactly how my prep went and not just someone else's. So it wasn't just data that I was seeing. But um, we did everything from 
blood work, which obviously helped us see like how, how the uh, hormones change throughout the study, uh, sleep quality with a, a Pittsburgh sleep quality index, which is basically you, you score different factors that, that the questionnaire has and, and tally it, and it kind of gives you a, uh, an idea of how someone's sleep quality was from month to month. Um, we did an actigraph, which is sort of like a Fitbit. You, you wear it while you sleep, and it shows you uh, how long it took you to fall asleep, uh, how many minutes total you were sleeping, uh, a bunch of different stuff like that, how many times you woke up at night. We did that monthly. Um, BodPod and DEXA, BodPod was once a month because, you know, obviously there's no issues with that, so you can BodPod as many times as you want. Um, DEXA, we basically did when I started the, the month of the two shows, and then at the very end of the study, just to kind of show a, a before and after type thing. Um, resting metabolic rate, we, we measured that with like a, a metabolic cart where you basically lay down for 30 minutes and turn off all the lights and have to have this thing in your mouth. Um, and it, it gives you a pretty good idea of how your metabolic rate changes. And then we did a, a Wingate bite test once a month as well. Oh, those which, are hard. Uh, it was awful. Ugh. Yeah, it was the, it was the worst yeah. part. So, um, yeah, I think people don't really know what, like, you talk about HIIT cardio, like, that's HIIT cardio, a lot of what other people do. Uh, until you've done a, a Wingate test, uh, it, it's a whole different world. So that was that was very interesting, doing that once a month for 13 months. Wow. I'm sure you're really excited about that. <laughs> yeah, it was a... It was a wake-up call for sure. So, um, so, so basically, just to kind of give everybody like a general idea, we did monthly testing on uh, virtually everything except blood work, which was every uh, I think three months, and then um, Abe, just because blood work can get pretty expensive. So, you know, obviously we had to to try to be strategic about that, so we weren't blowing our funding, uh, you know, within a few months. And um, so, yeah, that that's kind of an overview of all the things we tested. We tried to really think of as many things as we possibly could. Um, you know, at the at the time of us starting this study, there were only, I believe, two other ones, uh, Peter Fitchin and his group, which yep. uh, I'm sure you guys know and, and yep. you know, everybody that follows coaches knows him. And then uh, Chris Foss and, and those yep. two, um, you know, obviously their studies were great. People should definitely check those out if they haven't already. Um, so I basically tried to look at those, see, you know, what might be able to be added to, to kind of complement that. And uh, what things they may have have not looked at that we could look at, and then uh, you know, of course, just kind of build on from there. Um, so I would have been the the third, uh, to my knowledge, uh, but then a, a fourth one or a third one got published while I was finishing mine, so uh, took fourth place there. But <laughs> uh, who was the third one? Um, I know the uh, the lead guy was Robinson. Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> who, but, um, oh, Eric, isn't a female, Eric, right? Um, uh, the one, so there may have been another one then because the one I'm thinking of was, uh, he was a, a male bodybuilder as well, oh, um, in his early twenties and Eric Trexler. Yep. So for those of you that haven't looked at the abstract yet that are listening to this, um, I worked with UNC Chapel Hill. Um, I attended the university of North Carolina, Wilmington, which is on the coast in North Carolina. Uh, I worked with UNC Chapel Hill, uh, basically just to, 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 to make sure that the study was, was really solid and, and I wasn't leaving any gaps and, and things like that. And, um, through that, that's how, uh, you know, Lane, obviously that's how, uh, you know, we kind of first came in contact because the, the Byro Lane Foundation was, was able to fund the research and, and, and make it all happen. So, uh, Eric Trexler and, uh, Dr. Abby Smith Ryan were, were two people in the exercise phys department at UNC Chapel Hill that, that really helped throughout the entire process. And, um, they actually helped with the other study too. Um, like I said, I think the lead researcher was uh, Robinson, and, and it was somewhere in the UK, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, you know, now I, I think there's at least four that I can think of, and there may be other 
uh, somewhat similar studies out there. So it's it's cool to see it it developing the way it is, and, and these case studies are becoming more popular, which uh, you know I think is going to be really helpful, obviously for for athletes and whatnot to to really make sure they have a full understanding of how everything is going to typically uh, develop over a, a prep and. Uh, you know, especially, I guess that's one thing we can talk about later, but um, especially how long it took me for my hormones and, and everything to kind of bounce back. Uh, you know, that's even more. Yeah, it took uh, a, by month 13, right? You said, uh, <laughs> I think it said something like your RMR or something had still not returned to baseline um, after your show. Yeah, so my, my RMR hadn't, hadn't returned quite yet. Uh, my testosterone hadn't returned uh, quite yet. Uh, thyroid, uh, you know, T3, T4 um, was almost back to normal. Um, my winget hadn't returned quite yet. I believe I was still a little shy there. Yeah. Um, everything else, uh, uh, sleep had actually gotten a little bit better, but that was somewhat because, uh, the school semester was kind of winding down and, and, you know, obviously right, the reverse so, diet helped yeah. as well. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, what I love, um, is that and people like you, Andrew, are really helping to expand the area of research in the world of bodybuilders and competitors, especially, I feel like lately, uh, the competition world has been blowing up over the past several years and everyone, you know, wants to compete at least once, um, you know, it piques their curiosity and for there to be research out there for us to better understand what actually happens when you go through, cause it's, I mean, prepping for our show, is really hard on the body and I don't think people realize just how difficult it can be and how, even how, you know, how long it could take the body to recover from a contest prep. But Andrew, I want to ask you, uh, for the specifics of your diet and training, who handled your calories and macros and uh, training program specifics? Yes, I'm super glad you asked that. So uh, Cliff Wilson, another really good prep coach out there. Uh -huh. um, yeah. I had I had been working with Cliff since basically going into freshman year of college. So I worked with him basically yeah. three and a half years through college and and you know sponged up as much knowledge as I could from him. And um, during that time, so I had him handle. Um, you know, I just continued hiring him basically throughout college and. Um, we had become really good friends and, and we're still from really good friends to this day. So he handled my, uh, my training and my diet and my cardio at that point. So, um, that was really helpful because if I would have tried to do that by myself too, on top of everything else, I would have sure. probably had a, had a meltdown. So that was, that was really, 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 really helpful to, to have somebody else kind of in my corner and, and helping me make sure I wasn't doing anything, uh, too crazy and, uh, you know, really keeping a, an objective eye on everything. Yeah, I well, think I think it's impossible to be objective when you're when you're your own when you're competing. I noticed that you know the body dysmorphia gets pretty severe, and um, it's even if you're an accomplished coach yourself, it's it's really hard to coach yourself. Yeah, I can speak yeah, to I that. totally believe. I can speak to that. I mean, in 2010, yeah. I, I did my own prep, and you know, like I, I would say that for a natural bodybuilder, I probably carry probably more muscle mass than most. Like I'm a pretty muscular guy on stage, um, and. Uh, I got to the point where, like, I basically panicked because I was coaching myself, and I just went into the mode, and I think everybody's had this, where, well, I don't care if I eat nothing. I'm just going to, you know, be as lean as I can. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was eating, like, 80 grams of carbs a day and 40 grams of fat in, like, the last three weeks before the show. Um Which is pretty darn low for somebody with, like, you know, like, just under 90 kilos, or sorry, about... Like 85 kilos of lean body mass, you know, or 87 yeah. kilos of lean body mass. That's that's um, a pretty low amount. And, uh, yeah, it, you know, and it, I, I probably did not need to get that aggressive. You know, that was probably actually counterproductive for me. 
But I, I, was, con I was convinced I had to do my own prep because at that point in my career, I just finished grad school. I wanted to show that I could do my own prep, do yeah. really well, and be good for my coaching business, which it was. Um, mm -hmm. But I think if I'd had somebody to tell me what to do, it would have gone much more smoothly. And I think if nothing else, I could have ended up being you know, low calories still. However, uh, I think I would have felt better about getting there. I think just having that stress off of you, of somebody be, of, of you not having to wrestle back, well, uh, I was up today, but I was down yesterday. Should I drop calories? Yeah. Like, should I do more cardio? Like, yeah. you know, because what you end up doing is chasing your tail because um, yeah. you'll, you'll drop calories then you'll weigh in light and you go, oh, you know, I need a refeed, you know, and, um, <laughs> you know, you can just end up going around in circles. So, like, yeah. I used to, um, I like what Mike Tushir says. He's a powerlifter, but I think it's very applicable for bodybuilders. He says whenever he thinks about making a change to his training or, uh, and I think this could go for nutrition too, he makes himself wait a week and still if he f sees if he still feels the same way. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, I'm like – that's really hard to do, but I think it's a good rule if you're not if you're going to try and coach yourself, you know. So yeah, um, yeah, you know, I think that um, the, the, there's real value there. But um, and what sounds interesting is it sounds like you know he was. I think the point to make here uh, as well, and I think when we get in the data, Andrew's going to probably support this. Is even if you have a really great prep coach who you know keeps you from doing crazy stuff to get as lean as you need to get you are going to feel like trash. Like, yeah. there's really no way around that. I mean, even Alberto Nunez, who is able to diet on 400 grams of carbs a day, he still feels like trash by the time he gets lean enough because for him, that's low, you know? And that's yeah. why I always tell people, like, low-carb, low-calorie, it's a relative term. You know, if your maintenance, if your BMR is 4,000 calories, well... 2,500 isn't low for me, but it might feel low for you, you know, because based on your BMR, that's low. So, um, yeah, I'm going to be interested to see what, uh, what, whether my hypothesis here supports uh, what Andrew's going to tell us. No, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that because it's kind of like whenever I was, you know, developing the study and whenever we were going through it, that's one thing I kept thinking of is like, you know, it, it's, it's not something that you can really put in the study because it's, it's a subjective thing to say, like who's to say, you know, this guy's a better coach than this guy or whatnot. You know, it's, you know, people are going to have their opinions, but uh, yeah, like, you know, we were following very, you know, scientifically backed um, strategies and, and, and clips. Like I, I, I would trust uh, wholeheartedly, you know, with my prep, obviously it's one reason we work together. And, and so we were doing things quote the right way. And, and yeah, things were, awful during the end of, of prep, you know, and, and things really got pretty tough. So like, you know, it's, it's pretty easy for me to think, holy hell, this was pretty crazy. And we were doing things the quote right way. So these people that are doing these, you know, crazy, uh, you know, crazy restrictive diets and, and, uh, you know, cutting carbs down to near nothing from the very get go and, and doing hours and hours and hours of cardio unnecessarily, uh, just imagine, if they were able to, to do some of these um, measurements throughout their prep, just imagine how much worse they must feel and, and some of their testing is showing up. But, you know, I couldn't even imagine even more so then. And you were, Andrew, during this time, you were a full-time student. Is that correct? So, yeah, I was doing um, 
so just to get, kind of give everybody a little bit of an idea, um, I graduated from, from University of North Carolina Wilmington with a, a BS in exercise science, and then I, I actually did minors in chemistry and uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, so then I picked up this honors thesis to do, and at, at that point I was coaching uh, just a few people, um, and then I was also working with a, uh, within the sports nutrition industry as, as basically an assistant sales director and uh, traveling around quite a bit doing that. And uh, um, yeah, it, it made for a pretty busy time, but, but that was on purpose. You know, obviously I, if, if I was going to be in a university and have the chance to, to do that, you know, obviously I wanted to, to squeeze every, every uh, possible amount of, you know, development I could out of it. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of what I was doing. I ended up graduating with that. And, um, you know, like I mentioned, this was my honors thesis that I, that I kind of tacked on, um, which I, I wouldn't have had it any other way. I'm really glad. And, and, uh, everyone says they're the college they went to is like one of the best colleges, but, uh, I would definitely recommend, uh, UNCW if anyone's looking to, to go to a solid college for, uh, for something along those lines. For exercise science. That's really cool. And I, I, um, I have to I admire you for for juggling a, a full time contest prep while you were in school. I know how difficult that can be. I think school in itself is uh, is quite the handful, quite the responsibility to take on. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the most notable physiological changes you went through? And also, um, I don't think it was discussed in the case study, but I would like to know, and for the listeners as well, how did you feel? Physically and psychologically, going into the contest and then after, in the aftermath. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, well, first off, thanks for the the kind words. I definitely appreciate it. And it's uh, that's one reason I was excited to do this podcast because I know you both have. You know, I'm not telling either one of you guys anything you don't already know. So it's 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 mm-hmm. nice to to kind of link up with like like minded yeah. people. Yeah. So um. So yeah. Thanks a lot for that. But um. You know, I would say. As far as some of the most notable things, uh, you know, whenever people look at this abstract or, or even, um, you know, get the, the full PDF online or whatnot, um, my sleep, one, one of the big things on the study that I really wanted to look at is sleep quality because we know uh, the deeper people get into prep, almost always they have a lot of sleep issues. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll wake up more. They won't be able to sleep quite as much because things are disrupted so much. So in my mind, the sleep was going to be this huge, new, very unique thing to this study that was really going to like – make sure it gets published. Uh, but unfortunately my sleep was trash basically the, the entire 13 months. Um, I think I did the numbers and I didn't average any more than, uh, like five hours and 45 minutes Ooh. a night, the entire ah. 13 months. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was a, a busy time. So unfortunately that, that alone, I would dare say, you know, caused some of these, these, this data to be a little bit skewed because like my cortisol levels, um, you know, I, I did morning testing and the, the reference range for, for my age and, and gender or whatnot is 6.2 to, to roughly 19.4 is what you should be averaging. Uh, when I started the study, I was at 25.2. So I was up, up almost six points from, you know, what the, the top end of, you know, quote, normal is. Um, and that pretty much didn't decline the entire 13 months up until – uh, I think towards the end of the study, it finally dropped a little bit because school was finally finishing up. So, you know, I would say one of the really notable things was just, you know, obviously like we tell everybody, you know, whether they're the off season or dieting, but then especially if they're dieting, like if your sleep's really screwed up, you can expect a lot more weight stalls. Um, you know, your, your energy levels are obviously going to be kind of crap. It can, can really spike grilling and whatnot. Um, so my sleep was off basically the entire study. So if, if I had been, sleeping a much more consistent and, and quality average night's sleep, uh, you know, I think everything would have probably progressed 
um, at least a little bit better and I would have felt better. Um, so that's, that's a big thing. If you're going to do a prep, you know, kind of assess what your, your lifestyle is like and, and how that might, may affect things before you get rolling. Um, the other thing that I would definitely mention and Lane, I don't know if you remember this, but I presented a poster on this. Um, I think it was last year in 2015 or yeah, I think it was 2015 or 2016 in July at an NSCA conference. And Lane, that's where I actually met you in person and we talked very briefly. Um, and during that conversation, one thing that we talked about that I, I thought was a, a super interesting point that you brought up is um, most of my most of the the, the measured areas were at least pretty close to back to normal. There were a few that were still had a little bit of ways to go, but after you know basically five months of raising food, dropping uh, cardio gradually, uh, I was weighing the same. My lean body mass was about the same as when I started prep. Uh, most of the data was back to pretty close to baseline, but I still felt not good yeah. at all. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, that's interesting. The, uh, how, the, how, um, because obviously reverse dieting is not an exact science because we don't have any research on it. Um, yeah. So did you kind of just gradually increase calories from the start? Did you do a calorie boost at the beginning? Like uh, how did that go? Like after contest, what was your initial bump up? And what was your in, was your intake when you had those measures where lean body mass was back to normal? Was your intake the same as it was pre diet, or was it more? Was it less? Do you uh, do you remember that data? Yeah, I've got some of it in my notes. I'm actually gonna glance through it right now while I'm talking. Uh, I do know um, towards the end. Let me get my notes. I can't believe I've misplaced it. So just to give people kind of an idea of. of where my calories at were when I started, I was taking in like just under 4,000 calories when I started. Um, at the time of the contest, right before peak week, I was taking in uh, like 1,725 calories. So, uh, you know, that was over the course of, of like eight months of dieting, gradually working down. Uh, when it came time to reverse diet, I wish I had kept a weekly log of, of every adjustment that I made. Uh, at the time, I didn't even think twice about it because I was so worried about everything else. But that would have been super interesting for a lot of us that, that deal with coaching and, and, you know, just athletes in general. Uh, I will say that the first week, uh, it was kind of an initial bump just to make it uh, a, a little bit more manageable. Uh, yep. so I, I think we, we ended up bumping my carbs up. Uh, you know, I was taking in 80 carbs before peak week. I think I probably bumped up to around like 150. So probably 50, 60 carbs. And then um, I think fat, we had only increased it, you know, maybe like six grams that first week, uh, just kind of give me a, a little bit of a bump, give me some more wiggle room, make it a bit more manageable. And then throughout the rest of the reverse diet. So, you know, say in the last four and a half months, um, you know, the changes w varied between somewhere about 10 to 30 grams of carbs and, and maybe four to eight grams of fat. And I actually think I outlined this somewhere in the study as well, very briefly, but uh, so, you know, basically it was one week of, of a, a little bit bigger jump just to make things more manageable and then uh, some smaller increases from there. Um, you know, and this is something you guys probably have some good insight in as well. But but obviously, like you said, there's not an exact science with reverse dieting in general. Uh, you've got some people that think you should go back to, to near your baseline of where you started prep within a couple weeks and just embrace the extra weight gain and, and get back into a, quote, more favorable spot to, to begin growing again. Uh, and then other people will, will more or less drag it out and, and try to really go super slow with it, which, you know, I think both extremes kind of have uh, um, some downsides to it. So, you know, we try to, to somewhat make, meet that in the middle. 
Um, yeah. you know, we, we definitely didn't do these five to 10 gram bumps from the very get go. Cause, uh, you know, that's reverse dieting in general is pretty hard to manage. So, um, you know, we're, we were both kind of in the camp of, uh, you know, meeting somewhere in the middle, but uh, hopefully that gives people at least some kind of an idea of, of just generally how we approached it. Um, if I hadn't been doing this study, uh, like I said, there's, there's no telling how the reverse diet would have went. Cause it was, a uh, you know, definitely a lot to, to take in, but, um, you know, I, I don't know how exactly I may have done it differently if I would have done it differently, but um, over those next four or five months, we we were pretty consistent with making some changes pretty much every week. Um, like I said, my lean body mass and my body weight was basically back to normal within five months. Um, as far as my intake, uh, I actually can't recall exactly what my intake was at the at the last of the study, but I do know it was not quite where we started because I, I started taking in um, like just under 500 grams of carbs. And I know I wasn't back up to that. I was probably up to, um, you know, uh, don't quote me, but it was probably somewhere in the line of like 350 or, or close to 400 at that point in the reverse mm. diet. So, so not it's quite back. So yeah, it was, this is, this is what's interesting is, you know, and I'm, I'm not trying to call anybody out specifically because they're, they're they back it up with data, but I think, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that, um, you know, data is just means, right? And, um, you know, you're not a mean, you're an individual data point, right? So, you know, Menno Henselman's, when we had the reverse diet debate, uh, he said, you know, it's all just body fat and lean body mass. If you regain all that you lost, you'll be back up to where you were. And this actually says that that's not necessarily the case, that, you know, maybe it's the case on average, for the average person dieting, but for somebody who's doing contest prep. And I think this is where the disconnect between me and a lot of the other scientists out there who say these sorts of things and kind of dismiss uh, reverse dieting or metabolic adaptation. I think that I think maybe the disconnect is that I'm used to seeing a lot of contest prep people who are going through really extreme diets and then really extreme rebounds. And it just, I can tell you that there's just some funky metabolic stuff that's happening. Um, and you know, if you create, you know, I think, you know, Lyle McDonald's, you know, his, fa his favorite number is 15%. The metabolic adaptation is only 15%. Well, you know, I think for most people that's probably about right. I think that that is probably about right for most people. But I think if you push extreme restriction, I think you're going to probably get a more extreme adaptation. And mm -hmm. also the point to be made is that if the mean is 15%, that means you're going to have people that are 25, 30, 35 <laughs> You know, yeah. and you're going to have some people who don't have any adaptation at all. Like that's 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 the point. And I think the the other point is I think it's okay that when you're formulating as, as a coach, when you're formulating things, that you start with the data that puts you at the mean, right? Because that's most likely to work for more people. But then based on how the individual responds, that you're going to adjust that more out towards the outliers. Because at the end of the day. Who gives a damn what the mean says if that mean is not creating a positive response for you? Yeah, that's a super good point. So I think the other thing I wanted to touch on, Andrew, and, and maybe you can speak to this, is um, – and this is uh, – I feel like <laughs> I'm just calling out all the people in the industry right now. But, you know, like I actually really like Minnow Henselman's and I really like Alan Aragon. You know, just because we disagree doesn't mean I don't like them because I really do. Um, mm. But like, you know, Alan has, and, and Eric Helms even has, has said, well, you know, after you're done with your diet, you should just go back to your maintenance. You should just go back to your maintenance. Um, I completely agree with that. The, where I disagree with them <laughs> is, um, 
the definition of maintenance, right? Um, if you're talking about actual maintenance, well, then by definition, you would not gain body weight. Are we, are we in agreement on yeah. that? Yeah, um, I was just thinking that before you even – I was hoping that's where you are going with it. Right, exactly. So <laughs> you know, by definition, if it's your maintenance, you won't gain body weight. Perfect, right? Well, <laughs> if we're talking about – but what they are talking about is predicted maintenance, which is not going to be your actual maintenance by the end of a long diet. And even, you know, so I think you have to be honest with yourself. And I tell clients this, and I, this is how I coach. And I'll say, listen, what is more important to you? Feeling normal faster or being able to maintain more of your leanness? If the answer is feeling normal faster, then by all means, let's throw more calories at you. But you have to understand that you're going to gain more body fat. If the answer is, I want to keep more of my leanness, well, then you're going to feel like crap for a longer period of time. But you're going to maintain more of your leanness. You know, you can't really have both, right? Now, yeah. eventually, I have had cases where I've gotten people to slowly reverse. They may, they kind of maintain quite a bit of that leanness. And, and if they maintain it for a long time, that actually kind of becomes their new normal. Like, I've seen people who this actually happens to. And there is some data that suggests that if you stay at a low body fat for a very long period of time, that that can become your, your new normal. And I think it probably has something to do with, with you becoming more sensitive to leptin. But... Um, yeah, I, I think that we're, we're some of the debate around reverse dieting and metabolic adaptation is just kind of people looking at means and wanting to, you know, kind of say that that should drive everything when in reality everybody's an individual data point. I yeah, think, uh, with coaches in the real world who who work with actual clients, because I you know I think you know science and research informs us, gives us all the lot of information, but at the same time, I think having the real-world practical experience is also another really important part of learning what actually happens, and we can say, yeah, sure, the research says this, but here's what I've experienced with all of my clients. I have one client who does this, another client who does this, and it doesn't always fit what the research what might predict. Well, and in my, in my defense with the reverse dieting thing, I never tried to say, hey, this is some magical cure that is going to do X, Y, Z. I've said, here's this thing. It's worked well for some clients. Um, there's no research behind it, but this is what I've observed. And if you want to give it a try, fine. You know, there was never um, there was there was never any kind of. Um, I don't feel like I marketed it irresponsibly, although other people would would disagree. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, and I think that's a great point, Sohi. That that um, you know, the first one of the one of the cru crucial phases of science is observation, and so. If, if you just, you know, if we're, we're just going to go to, based off what PubMed says, well, you know, when, when Newton saw the apple fall from the tree, there was no PubMed study he could run to and say, aha, see gravity. So <laughs> I think, uh, I think, you know, not, 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 not comparing myself to Isaac Newton. I can see, I can see the hate already. <laughs> but, um, Sorry, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> But I think, I think the point is that, um, you know, you have to be willing to be – one of my favorite quotes is be open-minded but not so open-minded that your brain falls out, right? So I think we always have to be willing to consider new, new, new data. So I think it's interesting, Andrew. It would have been interesting to see if, if you had gotten also your calories back to normal where, where the – now, I, I don't know if – because I, I remember you, you showed me this poster and, and, and I saw this. So 
your lean body mass and body fat was back up to normal, but your um, your metabolic rate had not gone back to normal. I wondered if you had gotten your 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 intake back up to normal, and then all those three markers kind of intersected. If if that would have 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 shown a different result, if you'd have been back to your normal BMR. Yeah, yeah, that that would have been really interesting to see. And and it's it's funny, like afterwards, there's there's things you spend so much time on a study trying to get it perfect. And then afterwards you still look back and you're like, ah, shit, I should have done <laughs> you know, this or that. Uh, but, uh, but no, I, it's, it's a really good point. I think you guys uh, really hit it on the nail on the head because uh, you know, even now like people will ask me about maintenance or I'll have clients ask me about maintenance. And, and like you said, I think that's, that's one of the big things is that people will have the misconception of that maintenance is this set number that doesn't change. And, and it's like, as you lose or gain weight, like your maintenance is going to change as well because like is your yeah, maintenance – yeah, are you trying to so, – so that's another thing too with the reverse dieting thing. Like if you're, if you're in the camp of I'm going to go back to, quote, maintenance or whatnot, like you said, first you wouldn't gain weight if that's really what you were talking about. But if you were talking about your, your maintenance before you started prepping, if you had to prep and somehow had, had to lose, you know, say 50 pounds – over the course of the prep and, and your maintenance for that body weight at 50 pounds up was, was X, you know, you might not want to jump right back up to the intake that you were taking when you were 50 pounds over stage weight or, or whatnot. So, so to me, it's, that's kind of where a lot of people uh, kind of get lost in the weeds as well. But, um, but yeah, I, I think, um, you, know, you know, obviously the physical part of it was, was really noticeable and we were able to kind of reflect that a little bit more on the study. Um, it, it would be nice. And, and that's where I, I'm really glad that we were able to do this podcast um, you know, obviously, like we talk about the mental effects of dieting and, and you know, being ready for the rigors of, of prep and reverse dieting and whatnot. But, um, you know, this study ended in November. My my numbers were, you know, the data was pretty close to baseline um, for the most part, or, or it was it, it was either better or somewhat close. But I remember December and January. So even two more two more months after that, I mentally wasn't back to where I was when we started the study. So obviously, Starting prep and starting the study that was, in, in my mind, going to be a, a big deal for grad school and whatnot. Like, obviously, I'm, I'm super excited. Um, I had a lot going on then, but, I, you know, energy levels were still relatively good. But but I remember even December and January, so that's five, six, seven months after I stepped on stage. Mentally, I still was, uh, you know, just very mentally fatigued. I remember going to the gym specifically in December right after, like, Christmas. It was, like, the day or two afterwards. Um and I still wasn't like necessarily stoked to be going to the gym. And like, I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, obviously I joke that yes, this case study is just one person, but if you're wanting to talk about averages, like I have probably the most average physique of anyone that could pee. So <laughs> I kind of joke, like there's some rationale to how average the study is, but, uh, so, you know, obviously, <laughs> so you know there's that for for anyone that wants to to look at what I look like on social media or whatnot you'll you'll kind of understand the joke but um you know so obviously I'm excited to go to the gym because like I want to get better and and become yeah. average plus some um so for me not to be excited to go to the gym 7 months after you know competing uh it kind of shed some light into into to how I feel when I have other clients, you know, transitioning into their off season and whatnot that, um, you know, sometimes it really does take a lot to, to really bounce back to feeling, you know, your normal, you, uh, you know, even if your data looks, you know, like, Oh yeah, you shouldn't have any problems at all, but you could very well still not feel fantastic to, depending yeah. on those circumstances. So Andrew, yeah, I want to bring up two points. So one, I know you mentioned this uh, a little bit ago and I want to go back to it cause I think it was kind of glossed over and it's worth discussing a little bit more. 
One is you mentioned in passing that you had an eight-month prep. This flies in the face of what most people think is normal, which is 12-week, 12-week prep, which is three months. And uh, I don't think people realize how long you need to diet down for in order to get contact lean. So you did an eight-month prep. And um, my second point is uh, I want to know about more about uh, the – so I'm interested in the psychology of eating behavior. So my question for you is – how did you, how did your food neuroses and overall paranoia and obsession with your, with your body image, with dieting, with food in general, how did that change throughout the course of your, did it get worse, uh, which is what would be my guess, throughout your contest <laughs> prep? And then did it um, continue, and I know you touched on it a little bit, did, did you continue to have issues with food after the show was over and for how long? Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's a, a really good question. I, I probably wouldn't even have thought to touch on. So uh, just to cover the number one, uh, just so I don't forget. Yeah, so this was a super long prep, you know, it was like eight months. Um, I would say one thing to note is, uh, you know, obviously, like, this is a whole other thing that I'm going to try not to digress on. But, like, depending on how much weight you actually need to lose before prep is obviously going to play into the fact of how long you need to prep for. But But I would say, like, in my situation – we started well ahead of time. We, we kind of had an idea of probably what body weight I was going to end up looking at on stage. Uh, so, you know, we had a, a pretty good idea. And, like, Cliff's, uh, it, you know, it wasn't his first rodeo, so, like, I had him to, to kind of give me some insight. So we started well ahead of time with the thought of unless something crazy happened, like, this is going to give us plenty of time that way. So one thing that that should be mentioned is, like, I obviously had to have this finished, this study started and finished by a certain time. That way I still had time to, to submit the thesis, uh, defend it. And then, you know, obviously prior to graduation, unless I wanted to like stay an extra semester, which in my mind just like wasn't an option. So there were some timeline considerations just in terms of like the actual college part of it. Um, so we started ahead of time that way even with some bumps or in the road or whatnot, if we needed to change something or delay when I actually competed or whatnot, uh, you know, it would obviously give us some wiggle room. So we started in our minds well ahead of time, but I actually went through periods. Um, it would take someone actually looking at the full study to really see all the data, but um, there were weeks that would go by where my weight would stall like hardcore stall. And I think a lot of that had to do with, um, not to sound like cool, but like I was doing a lot of stuff. So my, like I said, I wasn't sleeping a lot. It was like very go, go, go trying to balance a lot of stuff. So my stress levels were like through the roof as like a lot of college people will can attest to, um, wasn't sleeping a lot. So I think that really had a lot to do with, with some of the fat loss issues I saw. So, um, I had several weeks where I would stall and we would have to, you know, kind of, um, regroup and, and look at things and make some tweaks. And, and, uh, so, you know, I would go several weeks without really losing hardly anything. And then finally I would see a really good drop. So, um, uh, my, my prep, I said all that to say my prep took eight months. Uh, if it was a more quote ideal situation, it may have not have taken me that long because I lost basically 20 pounds over eight months, which if you do the math is like 0.63 pounds a week, which, uh, you know, isn't, too bad if you were actually averaging that out. Uh, you know, obviously you try to shoot for like a one to two pound a week, depending on the, the body weight of the person and whatnot. Um, so I say all that to say it, mine drug out even longer than it probably would have if I were in uh, a little bit more favorable circumstances. Um, but in general, yeah, that does go to show you like you might have a situation like me, like you might start prep at 
X date thinking you have plenty of time and you know, shit might happen and you've got to extend how long it takes you to diet. You know, your job might have you doing overtime or you've got kids or, or whatever. Um, so, you know, hopefully that does kind of give people an idea. Like this is us doing things quote right. And, and it took a long time. So, um, this is one thing I try to point out when I have clients come to me and wanting to compete in eight or 12 weeks. And in reality, they're looking at like 24 or 32 weeks to really be yeah. stage ready. So, um, so yeah, that is a really good point. Is, is really key in the beginning and being open-minded to pushing back a show or understanding that the, the dieting period may be a good deal longer than you initially anticipate. And you probably need to get leaner than you really, especially if it's like yes. your first show or two, like, yep. You're probably overestimating how much muscle you really have <laughs> under all that, or That's underestimating true. how much you're gonna, how much lean body mass you're gonna have to use, you lose to get down there. You know, people, yeah, don't, that's a people don't realize that. That's really, yeah, that's not fun. That part's not so fun. And um, I know there's a lot behaviorally we can do to to re retain as much lean body mass as possible in the way of you know consuming sufficient protein and lifting weights and whatnot. But there's also, I think. Um, there's also the individual variation that we talked about genetically. Some people just are predisposed to lose a lot more muscle mass than other people. And, um, we talk about, you know, you know, you'll hear some people saying that getting, look, getting your body to look a certain way is purely a matter of trying hard enough and working harder. And I very much disagree. Yeah. I think the genetic component of, of, of physique changes is not talked about nearly enough. You, you and I could do the exact same things and we can look very, very, very different. Yeah. And, and, and I'm going to digress here a little bit, but that's a super good point too, because like you said, um, you know, one reason I, I've done a lot of the, the, the research side and really try to get involved into this is because like I said, I, I'm not like a naturally, like I wasn't born to bodybuild. I just happened to really like bodybuilding. So I, you know, I've just kind of done it in, in despite of what nature has given me, but, um, you know, like on social media, like these coaches that, that, I'm sure some of them work hard, but then at the same time, you have some people that are just genetically predisposed to look really, really good uh, and adapt really well to training. Uh, you know, so for a lot of people, that's kind of the big lure to why people hire them because they look great. So if they look great, then uh, everyone else is, you know, wants the same results. But but in reality, like you said, there's a lot of a genetic factor. But uh, in my mind, from the very beginning, knowing that I was a, a smaller guy. I knew I could compensate for that in, in some ways by focusing more on the science and, and really educating myself. That way I could kind of, uh, you know, have other unique things to offer, you know, clients and whatnot, which has kind of helped. Um, but, yeah, I think I think that would have been a difference is you, to think, you know, I was a 21 year old kid. I'm, I'm still a kid, but I was a younger kid then. Uh, you know, I was 21 and, and not like an overly huge guy. So, if, you know, if I happen to be a, an athlete that that held a lot more muscle than I did, uh, you know, maybe even that would have attributed to, to, you know, how, how well the prep went and, and how far I had to dig because, you know, you'll see a lot of people out here and, and I hate to say it, but like bikini athletes are, are like the most notorious for it. Um, they have this idea of a certain look. They, they want to look like this certain IFBB pro or, or whatnot. Um, so they diet themselves into the ground thinking that if they get lean enough, these muscles that are present in these IFBB pros are just going to pop out. Like, you know, they're just going to diet, into this physique and it, it's a matter of you may just not have the muscle so you're the look you bring on stage especially as a younger person is going to be probably quite different than like your idols that you're hoping to look like within your first couple of years of training if, if that makes sense and sorry for the tangent but uh i think that's a really good point oh totally absolutely 100 um, well andrew we're gonna have to wrap up here but um i guess 
Could you give us one thing or two things that if you had to tell people who are going to compete or, or diet or whatever, a couple things you've, you've learned from this that, that you feel like people could implement and, and be more successful? For sure. So um, one I would say is definitely like actually look at the research and, and not just abstracts, but, but really try to find the, the, the science you know, everyone wants to say science-based science based now. Like supplement companies say it all the time. Coaches say it all the time. But like there's a difference between saying you're science-based and actually like being involved in the science. So, you know, to really try to stay up to date with these uh, journals that are publishing like legit research and uh, kind of getting an idea of what that's culminating to be, uh, I would say definitely that. And then B, um, you know, there's never going to be like a perfect time to compete. Like you're going to have to deal with your own struggles. You know, I had the stress of trying to balance this or that, but other people might have kids or whatnot, but uh, at some point, if you want to do it, you're just going to have to dive in and, and handle that on top of your other stuff. There's never really going to be a time where you're just completely stress-free and you have nothing to worry about. Yeah, that's never just a not, perfect Yeah, I mean, that, that's life's just not like that for any of us. So um, off the top of my head, that that's two that I think really go a long way in just uh, helping people be a little bit more uh, educated and a little bit more realistic with, with how their prep's developing. Awesome. Well, Andrew, um, a minute to, to pimp yourself. Uh, <laughs> if people want to learn more about you and, and your coaching services, where, where can they go to find out about that? Yeah, thanks a lot. So um, on Facebook, I'm just like facebook.com slash Andrew N as in Nathaniel because that is my middle name, uh, Pardue, P-A-R-D-U-E. Uh, my Instagram is the same, Andrew N Pardue. Um, and then obviously if you want to look on my website, I have some client photos and, and some more information and, and that's just apfit.net. Um, so yeah, definitely check me out and, and definitely before I go, I just wanted to say thanks again, guys, for, for having me on. It's, uh, it's definitely been an honor. It's very cool to, to obviously be following you guys for, for quite some time. And then, uh, you know, to now be able to, to kind of collaborate on this has been really cool. And, uh, the BioLane Foundation making the study possible in the first place, um, it's definitely just been a very cool experience that's uh, that's definitely taught me a lot at the very least. That's awesome. Yeah, well, Andrew, thanks so much for being here. I, I'm super impressed. You're very well-spoken, extremely articulate. It's clear that you've done your research, you know your stuff, and I think you're a really positive contribution to the industry. Ah, you're going to make me blush, but <laughs> thanks a lot, guys. I, I definitely awesome. appreciate it all. No, I, mean, I think me and Sophie are the same way. I'll wrap it up on this. That, like, you know, we – even though, you know, we're basically uh, com competitors – you know, um, in this industry, um, you know, competition isn't necessarily a bad thing. And, um, you know, I, I'm just, I'm actually really happy that there's so many good coaches out there and they're interested in science. So, um, yeah, Andrew, uh, we're really happy for you. And, uh, uh, guys, I would recommend going and checking out Andrew. Um, of course, so he and I also offer coaching uh, services, shameless plug. Um, and uh, I think all three of us would feel comfortable recommending each other to clients. So, sure. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, man, thanks for joining us, and uh, best of luck in the future. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. All right, thanks, Andrew. Right, bye.